so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. It's always out of context. Yes, we are. You don't get a say. Mark is the audio engineer. No, I think the better thing is the... uh, is try not to give him 80 minutes of poo. <laughs> well, then use that. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me on this chilly Nashville morning is Brent Leatherwood. Great to be back with you, Lindsay. I'm surprised you don't have your parka on, actually. I've got three layers on. It gets below. Well, where's your scarf, though? Do you wear scarves? Yeah, I do, but it, it needs to be windier than it is. Okay. It gets below 70, and you start dressing for the winter. Mm-hmm. Christmas so. music has been going for a few weeks now in the Leatherwood household. Because, you know, last Saturday, it was like Christmas in the Leatherwood home with... Tennessee taking down Alabama. Oh, that's right. I forgot that we were going to have to talk about this. Mm-hmm. So how are you feeling? Great. On top of the world? On top of the world. I'm still going back and watching all the different videos and reading all the news coverage from Tennessee's win over the Crimson Tide. I hear there are videos out there of you doing victory dances. No. That no. I have yet to see. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> no, you won't see because they don't exist. I wonder if I could pay your wife to let me see those <laughs> videos. <laughs> I could offer her a Starbucks gift card. She might take it. Well, no, but Tennessee's uh, victory over Alabama uh, came at a great time because uh, just before the game kind of came to a conclusion in Knoxville. The Atlanta Braves, my my dearly beloved Atlanta Braves, and Mark, our audio producers, Atlanta Braves, they lost. And so they they could not successfully defend their world championship. So I needed a pick-me-up. And the Tennessee Volunteers provided that. Well, that was a pick-me-up game for sure. We can't have all of your teams winning because then you would probably have a coronary or something like that, (laughs) or you would be insufferable. Insufferable. (laughs) So that, but truly, I didn't want Alabama to win. I didn't want Tennessee to win. Obviously, there's a problem there because somebody has to win, but that was a really good game. If you're going to watch football, that's the kind of game that you want to watch. I mean, I think that's in the conversation for like Best games of all time. One of the best games of all time, yeah. Although I'm not sure what it says about their defenses because that's a pretty high-scoring game for those two teams. Hey, Tennessee's defense came through when it mattered. When it mattered, that's right. And Alabama made a bunch of mistakes when it mattered. That's true. For Tennessee. That's true. (laughs) So, well, uh, let's go ahead and start talking about what's been happening this week, and we'll begin with what the ERLC has been talking about. The first article I want to highlight is by our colleague Jason Thacker, 
And it's titled, Why Do Christians Address Sexuality and Gender Issues All the Time? Our Sexualized Society and the Good Design of God. And what Jason is pointing out here is that a lot of times people in our secular society will say that Christians talk about issues of sex and gender all the time and that our convictions based on the Bible and what the Bible teaches us are backward and uh, out of date and that we need to let people just do what they want to do in their private lives. But what Jason says is this, given the widespread cultural fixation on sexuality and gender, it is no surprise that the church would focus on these crucial aspects of both personal and social ethics. We must not believe that the Christian sexual ethic is simply a response to cultural movements. Instead, as humans, it is rooted in the very nature given to us by God. In an age where we often seek to create our own meanings and moral truths, Christians must remember that the biblical sexual ethic isn't about limiting one's pleasure, but aligning our desires with our God-given nature for our ultimate good. And that's truly what this article is about. In the midst of a society that wants to have full control over their own lives, and they can determine what their gender is, what their even what their biological sex means. It can change from from here to there. They can read try to redefine what marriage is. We will continue talking about these issues because, as Jason said, they are rooted in creation. God has given us a design. And that design is for our good and for the flourishing of our society. And we want to see our neighbors flourish. We don't want to see them rebel against God's good design. And so uh, be in sin against him and then also bring all manner of destruction and harm into their own lives. And Jason reminds us of the heart of the matter at the very end of his article. He says, as we proclaim and live out the Christian sexual ethic to which creation itself testifies, a broken society will witness how our God enables us to live in joy and true freedom as we point to the gospel of reconciliation and redemption. And that's truly what all these conversations are about. Yeah, Jason is taking on this notion that, you know, it's Christians that are obsessed with sexuality, but in fact, it is our culture uh, that is, and it is in increasingly obsessed with it in a dysfunctional way. And Jason goes through a litany of examples in this piece to, to kind of prove that. And, you know, we as Christians, we want to meet people where they are and try and explain to them, as you just pointed out, Lindsay, how God's design for them, particularly for sexuality, is actually for their flourishing. So no, we're not obsessed with sexuality. Instead, we are motivated to introduce these people to God's good design that is meant for their flourishing. It is spelled out in scripture, and we want them to not only come to know that, but come to know Jesus. And, and so ultimately, that is what motivates us as Christians to engage in this. And the second piece I want to highlight is by Jordan Wooten, and he deals with the State of Theology survey that Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries did, which revealed some interesting things. So the title of this piece is, What the State of Theology in America Reveals, Seeing Heresy as an Opportunity for Discipleship. So they did this survey of self-professed evangelicals, and they had several pieces of criteria that we would agree with are markers of someone who claims to be an evangelical. And you can click on the link here to read about that. But it revealed some disconcerting things about what some of these evangelicals believe. So regarding the doctrine of God, 96% agreed that there's one God, in three persons, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's a good thing, right? That's what the Bible teaches. However, 
things start to grow murky, as Jordan points out. 48 respondents said they believe that God learns and adapts, so he changes. 73%, that's a lot, believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, which is an ancient heresy called Arianism. 43% believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And 60%, so that's over half, declare that the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. So you can go on to read more about some of these wrong beliefs about the inspiration of Scripture, about human nature. And Jordan goes through this. This article is long, but it is really helpful because he'll go through and he will address historic Christian belief in those areas, in the doctrine of God, divine inspiration, and original sin, which is about our human nature. And then he calls us to see this not as an opportunity for hand-wringing and denouncing the evangelical church in America, but instead to see it as a chance to begin to deeply disciple our people, to make sure that pastors and ministry leaders, that churches are seeking to teach theology to its members, and to make sure that we are equipped to know what God's Word teaches about these things, to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that we have to the culture around us, and to be able to proclaim and live out a true picture of who our God is based on what His Word teaches us. Well, it's an it's an opportunity for edification uh, for fellow believers. And, you know, it takes us out of the the category of just thinking that you know, belief is just this kind of ephemeral feeling that we have, this kind of moral therapeutic deism, right, into true belief and and true Christianity, where I think it's important people need to know that there are these deeply held convictions that are markers of our belief. And he, on this section three that he's got here in one of these, he talks about Pelagianism and people having a hard time understanding the fact that you are actually born a sinful being. And the reason that I point that out, because the reason people need to understand that is because it is responsive to something that culture right now doesn't want to admit. We we all want to believe like, oh, you know, people are born naturally good. And that just, that just feeds into this like individualistic fervor that is in our culture right now. And Christians need to be the ones who are helping everyone else around us understand, no, you're actually born sinful. You are actually born evil. You're actually born in in opposition to God. And there needs to be a response from that. And the response is personal faith in Jesus Christ and relationship with him. And and so if, if if we're not able to get some of these finer points right, we actually are not offering the world what it in fact needs right now. Well, and we're not offering them a theology that they can stand on. We're offering them a theology Mm. that will ultimately disappoint because it cannot, well, it's not true. So it will not hold up. And, you know, you mentioned many people in the church imbibing things of the culture into Mm -hmm. their belief system. And we've been doing a series on our site on Fridays about worldviews and the role of worldview in our lives. And it's really going to focus on here coming up in the next few weeks, syncretism, because that, as this survey reveals, is a challenge within the church and a challenge for Christians. We may believe that Jesus is our Savior 
and that he's the only way for us to be forgiven of our sins and to be reconciled to God the Father. But we've adopted these other beliefs from our culture into our lives, and we've just made a mishmash of things. And ultimately, that is just, that's going to disappoint, and that's going to let us down, and that is going to uh, ruin our witness to the world because it's not a true picture of who God is. Right. I mean, you look at, you know, these various things that that Jordan is pointing out in this piece, and a lot of them sound like things that we want to tell ourselves uh, so that our consciences can be assuaged. I mean, that's honestly what it feels like. So whether it is something like, oh, no, people are naturally born good, or some of the other ones that 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 you mentioned that well, like the the one that you said, you know, God still learns and He adapts. Like that, just on its face, should I would hope to your average Christian that should sound laughable. But as he points out, there's a lot of people who believe this that call themselves Christians, and like that would just undermine the whole point of an omnipotent God. So yeah, I mean, again, it's it's important that we understand these finer points to offer a true word of hope and redemption to a world that that is in desperate need of that. Well, and, you know, it's important to note that there are passages of Scripture that are very confusing and that may seem like teaching something about God, like that God changes, but I'm thinking in the Old Testament, but it, and that's the importance of church and of studying the Bible in community so that we can rightly correct one another when we're getting it wrong and that we can have faithful teachers who help us to understand the Word. And so that, like Timothy talks about people who want their ears tickled, tickled. so that people can help us resist that temptation and, and maybe call us out when that's what we're succumbing to. So again, it's it's not necessarily, I mean, it's not encouraging news for evangelicals, but it's not news that should just cause us to throw our hands up in the air and be done with the church. Instead, it should cause us to double down on discipleship and uh, being like the Bereans and searching God's Word to see what it teaches. And one of the books that Jordan mentions here in his piece is Deep Discipleship by J.T. English. And so mm. we would recommend that. Mm-hmm. Uh, check that out. So all of us are called to be disciples, and we can do that. We don't have to be a ministry leader to do that. It, it Also, it makes me thankful for our seminaries uh, and all the good work uh, that they are doing, the professors there, the faculty that are they're pouring into pastors and ministers to equip them uh, who then can be sent out to churches and to equip their congregations. So I, it does make me I really appreciate all the work that is going on at our six seminaries uh, in the SBC. Absolutely. Yep. I'm a beneficiary of one of those seminaries, and I'm very, very thankful for my time there. Well, as I remind you every week, there are lots of other pieces on our site for you to check out. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, why don't you let us know what's been going on in the world? Well, on Thursday of this week, the world was shocked by the sudden resignation of British Prime Minister Liz Truss. And so that is our kind of main story here. And it comes to us from ABC News. And ABC News reports this, Truss, who only became prime minister on September the 6th, will be the shortest serving prime minister in modern political history. She said, quote, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the conservative party. Her resignation follows weeks of political and economic crisis after the government introduced a new mini budget, which was roundly criticized. 
The leader of the opposition Labor Party, Sir Keir Starmer, has called for a general election. The Conservative Party, then under the leadership of Boris Johnson, won a large majority in the last general election in 2019. Whoever is chosen as Truss's successor from the Conservative Party ranks will become the fifth prime minister since the United Kingdom voted to leave the EU in the Brexit referendum of 2016 in an unprecedented period of turbulence in British political history. From outside the steps of Number 10 Downing Street, Truss said a leadership election would take place over the next seven days. So, I mean, as it points out in the story, the the next person will become the fifth prime minister uh, since 2016. And that is an unprecedented period of of turbulence in in British political history. This is just not good, Lindsay. You know, you can step back from having opinions uh, on this economic package that Prime Minister Truss proposed. And admittedly, it did send all kinds of mixed signals throughout the British economy. I mean, their their economy is in a bad state right now. I think the most recent report came out early this week, and it showed inflation there is at like ten and a half percent. So, so they're in a far worse way than than we are here on this side of the pond. And you know, she is searching and and been trying to find her way through this this crisis over there, and it just ultimately became untenable. What led to this was. Ironically enough, a a vote that she had prevailed on, that the the government, the Conservative Party had prevailed on 24 hours prior, and things just descended from there. And um, she lost the support of key members of the Conservative Party and ultimately uh, made this announcement Thursday morning. So what kind of effect might this have on the rest of the world, particularly us here in the U.S.? Yeah, well, I mean, probably the best reaction that I've seen thus far and the most succinct one is from the uh, French president, Emmanuel Macron, who said, all we need right now out of the UK is stability. (laughs) And that's that's true. You know, the, the United Kingdom is still very much a global power. And uh, for it to have this kind of continual changeover in leadership is, is just not good for the global landscape. And that's that's actually the the part that I'm I'm more interested in. Take a step back from again wh- whether you support or oppose some of the the moves by Liz Truss, it, it's actually we're we're in a moment across the globe where Obviously, we know this in the American context. Institutions are being challenged like never before. But then, you know, on the scale of the world, democracy is being challenged. And folks who have authoritarian leanings or authoritarian designs, they are very much taking advantage of this moment. And so whether that is someone like a Russian president, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, and his illegal invasion of Ukraine, uh, all that we are seeing coming out of China uh, this week, it you know looks like uh, Xi Jinping is is going to be named the chairman and be given a third term. These leaders uh, who are are bad actors on the the world stage, they are gaining influence, and that is not good. And so, I mean, democracies are being tested internally and then also externally. And that should be a worrying development. 
for those of us who care about, you know, human dignity and just stability so that humans can flourish, uh, this is a moment where that vision is, is certainly being tested. The other big story that we're following this week uh, comes to us out of the White House, and this is being covered by Roll Call out of Washington, D.C. President Joe Biden pledged Tuesday that his first legislative priority would be to codify abortion rights protections upended when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade if Democrats hold control of the House and Senate next year. Speaking at an event organized by the Democratic National Committee at the Howard Theater in Washington, Biden referenced state-level restrictions on abortion that have taken effect since the high court's June ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Quote, the only way to stop these extremist laws that are put in jeopardy women's health and rights is for Congress to pass a law. And I've said before, the court got Roe right nearly 50 years ago. We believe Congress should codify Roe once and for all, end quote, from the president. He went on to say, together, we'll restore the right to choose for every woman in every state in America. So vote. You've got to get out the vote. We can do this if we vote. He went on to criticize GOP proposals that would prohibit or severely limit abortion, including a ban with some exceptions after 15 weeks, which Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina has been championing. Quote, if such a bill were to pass in the next several years, I'll veto it. But we can't let it pass in the first instance, he said. So, look, it's well known, our stance here at the RLC as it relates to abortion. We want it banned. But President Biden is basically trying to make this upcoming election uh, here in the next three weeks a referendum on abortion rights. And what is stunning about that is it continues to be a lower tier issue. Uh, In the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs decision, it crept up a little bit and certainly was was more on the minds of voters. But the reality is that it's now gone back down and uh, voters are much more concerned with economic issues, gas, inflation. And that is what is motivating voters right now. And so obviously, this is a morally unacceptable you know, position that, that he is espousing. But then just thinking through, you know, Politically, pragmatically, this this seems to be an odd move for the president to say this is going to be our number one priority because that's not what voters are are motivated by at this moment. And so I'm having a hard time understanding why he would say this is going to be the the number one item on the agenda uh, should Democrats retain uh, the House and bolster their majorities in the Senate because that's, that's just not what voters are asking questions about right now. It seems to be a, an answer in search of a, of a question. And the reality is when voters, well, actually just Americans in general, are asked about the positions, the relative positions of the Democrats versus the Republicans, by pretty significant majorities, the Democrat position of basically unlimited abortion is seen as the more extreme view. And, and so, again, it, it, this is this seems like backwards thinking coming out of the White House on this issue. And obviously, we are adamantly opposed to this. Uh, we've got an article in Baptist Press uh, with comments from me expressing our opposition to this move by the president. Because of this backward thinking... 
that you mentioned, do you think it makes it less likely that the Democrats retain control of the House? Yeah, no, I actually, I think this is actually going to backfire politically. Uh, I think because he is stating uh, this is going to be his first priority, I think voters are going to say, well, if this is what you're going to make the first priority, I'm definitely not voting uh, for your party. Uh, So, yeah, to me, this is, again, a politically hazardous proposition that the president seems to be trying to make with voters. I just don't think they're going to take him up on it. By and large, more and more polls are showing uh, that voters are moving back towards Republicans. So last late spring, it did seem like Republicans are in really good shape to retake both houses of Congress. Then after the Dobbs decision, just because of the kind of the fallout of that, and I think everyone was asking questions about it, uh, that momentum was slowed so much so that it looked like, okay, Democrats actually might be on the upswing. Now it's coming back to more historical trends, which is the president in his first uh, midterm election tends to lose seats in Congress. Uh, That's just the historical norm. And so this is that's kind of what this is seems to be reverting back to. So obviously, there's uh, probably going to be a lot more on this over the coming weeks uh, as Americans go to the polls. Uh, We'll continue to cover these things and and provide some commentary uh, where it's appropriate. And so, Lindsay, that's your look at This Week in Culture. Okay, Brent. So since I've been trying to talk about one fun thing at the end of each episode, I sometimes, when I go onto Apple News and look at some of the news stories, they have got my algorithm figured out, and I get sucked into these BuzzFeed news stories that are— Listicles. Like, they're listicles about just random things. And so the other day, I got sucked into this one that's like— It says, I hate to break it to you, but if you recognize any of these 32 pictures, you are officially old. And I won't go through all 32 of them, but I will tell you, I am officially old and so are you. So one of them is if you've watched TV on a big hulking piece of wood. So like these giant TVs that you can barely move with this tiny screen have wood paneled walls is another one. If you've ever been assured getting underneath one of these will protect you from a nuclear (laughs) bomb, and it's a desk like we used to sit in at school, which is hilarious. Did you have to do those? Nuclear drills? We didn't do nuclear drills. We did did nuclear drills, and and yes, looking back on it, it's like, okay, is that—was that really meant to, like, save us, or was that really just so that when they came and found our dust fragments— uh, under which desk they knew that, okay, these dust fragments belong to this too. <laughs> That's terrible. We never had to do that. I don't know why. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of them is if you've ever walked on carpet like this and it's shag carpet, which oh, yeah. I just have vivid memories of my grandparents' house. If you've ever eaten this delicacy for dinner, it's goulash. Totally used to eat that all the time. So macaroni with hamburger meat and... Isn't that beefaroni? Mm, we called it goulash. So... I'm pretty goulash? sure. Goulash? Yeah, go look it up. This one's funny. I don't it's, think they have goulash in North Florida. Yeah. I think it's called beefaroni. No, goulash is what it's called. Look it up. Goulash. Yeah. That's not a very Southern term. Yeah. Well, I'm not technically Southern. Oh. I was raised oh. in North Florida. Which and is my the parents South. are from the Midwest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They were military brats. Goulash. Yeah, goulash. Okay. If you've ever been flung off of one of these at 100 miles per hour, and it's one of those <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> wheels at the park where you hang on yeah. and you spin it. And so that is hilarious. Neither of us identified with this one. 
if you've ever had to use a can opener to drink Hawaiian punch. So I drank Hawaiian punch, but I didn't have to drink it out of a can. Yeah. Yeah. Di- yeah. I didn't have to drink it out of a can. That that was the one that I didn't have any familiarity with. Of course, if somebody this, said, have you ever eaten goulash? I would also say, well, no, I've never eaten that because that sounds terrible. But beefaroni? <laughs> beefaroni sounds amazing. Like beefaroni some, sounds like beefaroni terrible. <laughs> beefaroni? It's like meatloaf. Well, I like meatloaf, but why call it a loaf of meat? Or like meat balls. Why call it a ball of meat? That's just gross. If you've ever answered the phone having zero idea who was on the other end, that's hilarious. So it's just a normal I actually phone. miss those days. Yeah. If you've ever sat out in the hot, sticky sun on one of these, and it's one of those beach chairs that are, it's like woven with plastic. Do you remember that? And it yes. kind of yes. covers your... Yeah. The whole span of your body, it's hilarious. Right, you don't you don't have you, you said you weren't gonna go through all thirty and I'm you're, not, you're actually I'm just going, going through three of them. If you've ever stayed home sick and spent the entire day watching this guy and it's Bob Barker, the price is right. Okay, let me pick one more. Please well, have your pets spayed and neutered. Yes, exactly. Do you remember that? Yes, okay. I do. He ended every show with that, just making this sure. This one, that. yes. This one is really funny, too, just because of how they worded it. If you've ever eaten dessert out of a toilet paper roll, <laughs> and it's those push pops, push-up pops, <laughs> because, yeah, that kind of is a toilet paper roll. Anyway, so I'm officially old. If you click on this link, you'll probably get sucked into other ones because there was another one similar to it. But uh, <laughs> So, Brent, welcome to the old club, although I'm not as old as you, but we are officially Older millennials. Are you? No, you're not a millennial. Yeah, I am. You are? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're officially older millennials. Exactly. Take some of your Tylenol to help with your arthritis knee pain. (laughs) Get on with your day. (laughs) Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.